really asking for and asking tough questions. Does poverty drive inequality or does inequality drive poverty? Women just were not able to reach out and to look for support. We may all be in the same ocean, but some are in super yachts and some are clinging to debris. Emissions are expected to rise to their highest ever level. What should we do now? We are in the same world. We work together for a common goal. Hello and welcome to Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. I'm Andrew Trimble, the washed up ex-rugby player. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the many crises and disasters going on around the world and talking to two people involved in Oxfam's humanitarian program work. First up is humanitarian program manager Magdalene Nandawula, who has more than 20 years experience in the field. I paused there, Magdalene, because um, everybody calls you Magda, and I'm wondering if I've got to that stage where I can call you Magda. Can I just confirm that before we move on? Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Great. It's okay. I'm Magdalene Nanda. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay. Magda is currently based in the Ugandan capital of Kampala, but previously worked in Tanzania on the Burundian refugee crisis. Also joining us today is Oxfam Ireland's humanitarian manager, Colin Byrne. Colin's been with Oxfam Ireland for eight years and as part of his work has visited Oxfam's humanitarian programs in Yemen, South Sudan, Democratic Republic of Congo and Tanzania. Welcome Magda and Colin, thanks so much to both of you for joining me today. And as always, just a quick reminder folks, some of our guests are joining us from other parts of the world so the connection and sound quality can be a little bit of an issue at times. Before we get into Oxfam's humanitarian work and your roles in particular, I'd like to chat more broadly about humanitarian crisis and what they are, if that's okay. So first up, how do you define a humanitarian crisis? Is there a number of people that have to be affected before you can use that term? Magda, you want to kick us off? A humanitarian crisis in Oxfam is defined really as that overwhelming situation for the people and where the response capacity of the government is not able to cope with the event. So it's a crisis when it is threatening the health of the people, uh, the safety and general well-being and dignity of the communities. So this could be conflict-related. It could be disasters related to changes in weather, like flooding, landslides, could be droughts. It could be epidemics. Like now we have the COVID-19 crisis but we also had Ebola crisis in the past that really devastated West Africa. But it could be in a situation that really, really is beyond the coping capacity of the people and the governments. In terms of numbers, this could be relative because it depends on the situation. If it is rapid onset, you know, like people are moving, people have been affected by a flood, they are being displaced. It could range from even up to 5,000 people. You could find that some of the Oxfam responses will say, if you have up to 3,000 people crossing every day the border because of a conflict, that becomes a crisis which needs to be paid attention to. But on the other hand, it could be a slow onset disaster, which would mean that you may have to look at larger numbers before you consider it to be a crisis because then people are in their environment, it's a drought, but then the coping capacity gets eroded eventually and the numbers could be higher than that. 
Okay, so there's a broad spectrum, an umbrella term for humanitarian crisis. Colm, just bring you in here. What types of crises have you or your colleagues responded to most over the years? Are they conflict-related or down to natural disasters or hunger? Where to start, I mean, I think there are crises ongoing all the time, whether we see them or not. And I think there's often a perception that maybe today there are more crises than ever before. And I often wonder whether that's because we just happen to have more exposure to them because of media and the immediacy of global communications. But the reality is that there are crises happening all the time, everywhere in many different shapes and forms. So typically, you know, everything from conflict and, and I should say all of these things are interrelated. So when we talk about a crisis and we talk about the type of crisis, it's very hard to isolate them as standalone events. So, for example, when you do have conflict by nature, you will probably have population displacement. By nature, you will have people who are maybe injured or killed in terms of hostilities or, or in fleeing. You will have people who will be forced to leave their homes, forced to leave the land that they till and forced to leave their livelihoods. And therefore, they have no access to food or income to buy food. But we are certainly seeing an increase in proliferation of what would seem to be weather-related or climate-related events. So increase in cyclones, typhoons, but also drought as well. The other thing I would stress is it's not just the numbers of crises, but it's also the recurring nature or protected nature of crisis as well. So rather than seeing a conflict as a one-off event, a conflict often leads to a continuous protracted crisis where people are left living in vulnerability for a very long period of time. We know, for example, that the length of time for which people are displaced is increasingly rising. So it's increased needs. It's seen nearly 17 to 20 years as now the time frame for which most people are, are displaced. You see in the Syria conflict, which started in 2011, this year is the 10th anniversary of, of that crisis. You could make communities, and I know that Magda has worked with Congolese communities in Tanzania who've been displaced for more than 20 years. So it's not just the number of crises, but it's the protracted nature of crisis and also the increasing numbers that are being affected by crisis, particularly climate change. Colin, I'm just going to pick up on that point you just made there. It's the longevity of it. It's the extended impact. And I suppose just as someone not up to speed or not kind of hands on like myself, once it's out of the headlines, then it's forgotten about. But as you say, then there's years and years of lasting effect talking about climate change, how does Oxfam prepare for the inevitable long term, you know, given that climate change could lead to more than a billion people being forced to migrate by 2050 is the number that's thrown out there. How does Oxfam prepare for the how long term that is and how, how, how massive the impact is? Well, the first challenge, I think, is to try and predict where those affected by long term crisis are going to be in the first instance. So if it's climate related, for example, we know that people will be impacted by rising uh, sea levels and rising water levels, wherever people, particularly those in, in coastal communities. And we prepare for that by working in partnership with others, by working with scientists, working with those who monitor uh, climate change and weather related events more broadly. And then we work very closely with with local organisations and in many cases with local government entities, local authorities, who help us identify where areas of greatest vulnerability are. You know, there are many, many actors. There are so many people involved in this process. It's, we call it a diversified network of multiple different actors who are involved in this. It's the UN system. It's local communities. It's local NGOs, local civil society organizations, our local staff. That's at the micro level. And then at the macro level, you have the big wider UN system. 
And then in each country in which we work, we would typically do some form of analysis, which will try and predict where we see crisis and, and vulnerability being in five to 10 years down the road. And we try and prepare and plan for that. And we can do that by pre-positioning stocks. We can do that by reinforcing flood mechanisms, by building the capacity of local actors to identify and, and respond to risks. And then there's the broader element of, of fundraising, which is always hugely challenging as well, trying to mobilize the resources to enable us to do the work that to respond to crisis in the short term, which is very much a band-aid. And then also looking to address the longer term structural or root causes of what makes people vulnerable to a crisis in the first instance. Great stuff, Colm. Uh, Magda, just to bring you in there, has that been the same experience for you in your part of the world? Climate change is driving most of the humanitarian crises and then the after effect from that, Magna, what's your take on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think Colm has really covered most of the aspects of uh, our thinking as Oxfam and our action. I could just add here, I think uh, it's a reality that climate change uh, has uh, really impacted a lot in terms of especially livelihoods of uh, communities uh, because you find that issues like droughts and flooding are, are more severe and more frequent over the years, leading to longer-term vulnerability. And to me, it's like if you are thinking of just the climate change impact and looking at communities who are not properly really displaced, but who are experiencing such issues like crop failure and less production. One of the issues we are now looking at, of course, is the climate change adaptation for programming. So in addition to the disaster risk mapping and preparedness and looking at empowering people to using the local knowledge to understand how to, um, to identify those issues and actually mitigate the impact of that. We also look at the adaptation of climate change adaptation in terms of the production methodologies or the production techniques, the crops which are could be more resistant and look at, you know, alternative livelihoods. You find, for example, there are a lot of communities like in Uganda and Karamoja who have been really depending a lot on livestock. And now we are talking about alternative livelihoods because the pastures are getting less and less uh, with all depletion of the, the forests and wetlands and everything else. So you also talk about alternative livelihoods and in addition to climate change adaptation in terms of cropping. Uh, but there's also recurrence in terms of, even when you look at uh, the conflict displacement, I remember when I joined Oxfam back then in the late 90s, we had refugees in West Nile from South Sudan. And then by around uh, mid-2000, they started going back and the camps that we worked in were almost empty. And now, within the last like four years, they are back and full again. So the recurrence of that movement is really a problem as well because then people are experiencing this over and over again. So these are things that uh, really become more complicated. So uh, really being on top of that analysis and, and networking with others is very, very, very key in terms of uh, prediction of what might happen. Magda, you mentioned alternative livelihoods. What options are available or how can people who are experiencing this mitigate the risk associated with having a livelihood that's dependent on stability? What other options are there? Well, the options are diverse in terms of we now look more around Okay, if uh, I say, give an example of the livestock community, I mean, the, those who have been depending on livestock alone, the thinking is now that they should be involved a little bit more into agricultural production, 
but looking at crops that are more adapted to the environment and the changes in weather, because now the rains are less predictable. But it becomes more and more challenging. And I'm looking at, for example, I grew up near Lake Victoria, and I grew up in a fishing community, and now it is becoming more and more difficult to even survive on that as a livelihood option. So people are now looking at what else can they do and looking at more other options for income generation other than really looking at fishing. Colm, just give us a bit of an idea of Oxfam's response to a humanitarian crisis. Is there a template for the response or how does that mechanism typically carry out? Typically what we try to aim for is what we describe as a a community-centred approach. So it's based not on what we perceive people's needs to be, but based on a, a consultative process to ensure that we meet the needs that they have identified and that they most importantly have prioritized. It's important to emphasize as well that in most cases, it's local communities themselves who respond to a crisis. Our role is to support them, respond to that crisis, to enable them, to empower them, to, to mobilize resources, provide additional expertise. But for the most part, those best able to respond are those of the local community who know the language, who know the culture, who know the geography, who understand the specific nature of, of that local society. So our response in summary form, is very community-centred and led. That said, there's a broad structure which would, I'd say, characterise an Oxfam response, which is typically that we would focus on what is known as food security, which is ensuring that people have access to sufficient food. And also what we call wash or water and sanitation and hygiene promotion. And that means ensuring people have access and safe access to clean water, sanitation facilities and, and good hygiene practices to reduce the spread of disease, which often happens when systems break down or community water infrastructure and essential health services break down in a crisis. But there's a a new increasingly prevailing element of humanitarian response now, which is known as cash. You're all familiar with cash. And increasingly, the international aid community is focusing on providing people affected by a crisis with money. So rather than necessarily providing people with blankets or shelter materials, providing them with money, which enables them then to make the choice as to what it is that they want to spend the money on. And that also has the added benefit of stimulating the local economy in a crisis, which which promotes the recovery of the whole community as a collective. Colin, whenever you said cash, I thought that was an acronym. I was panicking. I was Googling quickly. <laughs> there must be something I'm missing. <laughs> um, I'm sure but, somebody will come up with an acronym pretty soon. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's really interesting what you're talking about. And the first thing you said there was we try to listen to what people need, listen to what the people who are experiencing the difficulties on the ground, what they need. And I work in software development, and this is a crude analogy, but it's very tempting for us to say to the customer, here's what we think you need, here's what we, we perceive your, your main difficulty to be and here's the solution that we're providing or suggesting. And I don't know if there's a similarity there. Is it tempting to go in and just all guns blazing and say, we know what you need? Like, how important is that to make sure that you go in and have that conversation in that context? Colin? I think what we've all learned over the years is that if we take that approach, that all guns blazing and generally the risk is that you do harm. A really a really simple example is that if you decide to put a well, if you try to dig or rehabilitate a, a well where pe- people can access water, what you might end up finding is that people have to walk very long distances to access that well, or they have to walk through neighbourhoods or through, uh, for example, bush or dense vegetation where people can be bitten by snakes, 
where they're at risk of, of sexual assault or, or abduction. Um, or just you increase the burden on particularly local women and girls who would be responsible for collecting water in many instances by demanding that they have to walk long distances. So we, we have this broad principle, which is known as do no harm. So it's very important that whatever we do, we don't exacerbate or increase risks for, for the communities that we're working with. And there's also a broader certification process, which has been brought into the international aid community, which is known as the, the CHS. And here's another acronym for you, which is known as the core humanitarian standard, which is basically a set of principles around which and we collectively agree to define our, the, the nature of our response. And to come back to that phrase I used at the outset, which is very much community-centred. Okay, brilliant. Magda, what's your take on that? What's the perception and what people need? What's the most important thing? Is it clean water? Is it food? Is it shelter? Is it all of the above? Or is it what they identify as the biggest need? Yeah, basically, it's what people need is very important. Probably in relation to um, the needs assessments, it's a lot depends also if it is a slow onset uh, disaster, you know, like a drought has been going on and whatever, and, and you have uh, the time to go in, talk to the people and say, okay, what, what do you need now? What should we do now? Okay, if it's a water system, where do we put it? However, if it's a rapid onset, for example, 5,000 people are crossing the border every day. They are being put into a camp or a flood has just happened and people have been, everything is washed away. I think we also have this general approach of where we go in as a multi-sectoral team, with wash our priorities wash and, and, and for emergency food security and livelihoods. And of course, looking at the gain and protection consideration, those are our priorities. But we still go in to see uh, what is on ground and where are the people, what are the options, who else is on ground, what is the gap that we should fill. So within those discussions with the communities that have been displaced, with the partners, the government structures, then we are able to identify, to evaluate what should we be doing and at what scale. And in that process, we already know that people who have been displaced in those circumstances, they are very vulnerable to health risks. So water access, clean water access and hygiene, sanitation promotion is key. And you may not have a lot of time for consultation uh, with the communities, but at least you, you have the basic information that you use to set up those sort of infrastructures for people to be safe and to have to ensure that you don't get these outbreaks. However, as things settle down, then you have the opportunity to do more consultations with the communities, to set up the community structures that you are going to work with, and to ensure that there's that overall ownership of what you're putting in place. And sometimes when it comes to water, we even start with basic water tracking just to get the water to the people as you now start uh, immobilizing resources and other partners to put more permanent structures. So it could, yeah, the needs assessment is a key element of our interventions, but saving lives is, is, is another important aspect that we consider in the first phase of a, a rapid onset emergency. Okay, I'm really interested. We've talked theory and we've talked, you know, about what this looks like responding to different crises around the world. Colm, I'm really interested to dig deeper into what that actually looks like practically and the logistics involved and the difficulties around uh, mobilizing a response, language barriers, funding, identifying a strategy and quickly under time pressure off. What, what does that look like practically on the ground, Colm? 
In a practical context, it can be extremely complicated. It often depends on whether you are already present, whether you have a presence for Oxfam, we as an organization, or some of our partners are already present in the location which has been affected by a crisis. So there's often this assumption that when something happens, everybody just jumps on a plane and runs in. And, you know, these men on white horses with, with all their aid on their back and, and starting to, to, to distribute sort of material forms of assistance. It's actually much, much more complicated. In order for us to respond anywhere, generally we have to be legally registered in that country. We have to respond with the consent of the national and also the local government and the communities themselves. So it's very important that we are accepted by the local community or our partners are accepted by the local community. In many cases, our partners are of the local community, which makes things much easier. Often humanitarian aid in, in many instances requires some form of exemption to, to standardize legal processes. So the sort of the importation of goods and, and supplies often tends to be a little bit looser to enable goods to be provided more quickly and for additional staff to be provided more quickly. And I would really emphasize what Magda said earlier, which is really important. It's local communities responding to crisis and it's we only really provide extra people when that local capacity has been overwhelmed. I think often as well, we already spoke about doing no harm, but we also have to understand the security context. We have to understand the geography. We have to understand the road routes. We have to understand the escape routes. We have to understand where people are likely to travel to if they're mobile, where are they going, where would they feel safest to go. And even registering people in the modern age of digital communications and facial recognition systems, even just the idea of documenting people is increasingly complicated as well because people fleeing a conflict situation in particular are often quite concerned about how their movements might be tracked or, or, or monitored. So there are a whole lot of administrative and bureaucratic and, and practical issues that need to be overcome. Um, and then there's the issue, you know, and if you are already registered, for example, in an area and you've done your planning properly, you may have pre-positioned stocks and supplies ready to go. So we know, for example, we're operating in some parts of South Sudan where it's almost impossible to get aid in at scale once the rainy season starts because the roads are blocked. And even the sort of the grass runways that we might ordinarily use during the, the dry season, during the rainy season are so damp that you can't actually land a plane. And when you can't land a plane, the only thing you can land is a helicopter. The helicopters are very small and very expensive. And so if you can pre-position stocks by flying them in by a large plane or by, by truck during the dry season, rather than having to fly in expensive helicopters with very small capacity during the rainy season, it's much, much better. So there's a whole list of logistical considerations that need to be considered. So it's not it's not straightforward. And then there's also the relationships on the ground and understanding different communities in different areas will have different needs. So one community may find that it's underwater and they need to be evacuated. Another community may have already have fled to higher and drier land and they need shelter materials. So you're trying to meet multiple needs all at the same time in different geographical locations. Most of the communities in which we work are not homogenous in terms of identity, not homogenous in, in terms of their needs, not homogenous in terms of their geographical location or their access. And it's people like Magda in most cases who have to navigate all of this complexity all at the same time, while also having to deal with those of us in head office who are making multiple demands on paperwork and 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 budgets, and uh, we want more information on what's going on, and and yeah, it's very complicated, yeah. and and can be extremely overwhelming. 
Magda, just from your perspective, I would love to know what that's like for you on the ground and what the response is like. And if it's something that happens regularly, do people get accustomed to these crises and do they become almost more familiar with, with how to react whenever the time comes? Actually, a lot depends. If you have operational presence already in the area where you have the crisis, it's much easier because then you have partners already probably you're working with and you can easily get the information you need to be able to make a decision of where you need to come in or whether you need to scale up something, uh, you need to redeploy uh, teams from different areas to go and, and, and support. So it becomes much, much easier but if it happens in an area where you have no operational presence, you have no partnerships, you have not established those relationships with the local governments, and the complexities of access come in, like in terms of you know road access, communication, probably you have even insecurity in the area. So it becomes much more difficult. And sometimes if you're working in a country which does not have experience at all, in, in, in humanitarian uh, responses. Uh, all the experience they had probably has already been eroded because people move on who have been participated in such, uh, you know, um, responses. Then that means you have such a country will need to depend on a lot of additional capacity from other Oxfam structures outside the country. And then you got into the bureaucracies of, like Cole mentioned, of even getting visas and allowing you to have international staff come in. It becomes very, very challenging. Now for the teams who go in to make those assessments, it's even harder because the information may not be available. So it is really, really a very challenging part of, of, of our work. And, uh, and the other part of the challenge is really around funding because some operations can be very costly, like you know, was mentioned. If you have to use a chopper in some places where there are no roads or because of insecurity, you have maybe a very bad terrain where people are settled, uh, the pattern of settlement is so, so erratic, and then you have to look for even where to put a communal latrine or where to even get water from. So those complexities can come in in, in some of those operations and they become very expensive when you're raising a budget uh, which indicates that maybe 50 to 60% of your costs are really operational costs and the donor is saying, no, I want people to get the water not to, to cover the, the, your operational costs. So that becomes very, very challenging in terms of how do you balance that equation to ensure that people get the support they need and you also fulfill your humanitarian mandate to ensure that you save lives in a very short time. So those are the sort of complexities I can add to what Colm had mentioned. Magda, one other thing Colin mentioned there is the bureaucracy and the becoming legally registered and he didn't mention yeah. the politics, but how political is that process and how difficult is that to navigate on the ground? Because it's not something people think about. People just think, get yourself in there and help out. But there must be so much more to it, as Colm's alluding to there. Yeah, sure. You've been in countries where the government feels they don't need that support and they don't have the capacity to actually deal with the response. But reality on ground, when you try to analyze, you really find that that access needs to be negotiated harder because people are not meeting the basic you know, standards they are supposed to have. So that negotiation can be hard. And the politics there would come in because sometimes people have interests in, in, in those issues 
may be from the country of origin if it's a refugee or influx. You may have a country of origin, a national government uh, where the refugees are running to relationship, which you would like really attached to the political affiliations of the people who are running away. But also we have been in areas where you have uh, like, you know, a different political interests, like some are rebels and others, the government are viewing the others as rebels. And these are rebel-held environments where the communities are running to. And now negotiating that access with the government so that you have not perceived like you are supporting the rebels, but you're actually interested in the community that are trapped there can take a little bit more time and it could be a little bit harder. And we have had situations like that. Just negotiating access becomes a challenge. I'm sure, Magna, it must be a nightmare and it must be frustrating to have to negotiate that whenever there's bigger things to address. Colm, I'm really keen to to find out a little bit more about Oxfam's work and and just typically how many humanitarian crises Oxfam would be responding to at any given time, um, what you guys are responding to at the minute and what have the big projects been over the last number of years? I guess it's less the question of of how many at any one time and more looking at the the sort of scope of them because there are many crises happening all the time. Some are short term, some are longer term, some are just dealing with the symptoms, some are dealing with the root causes. But in terms of our geographical presence, I mean, we're, we're in now over 40 countries and I think at any one time you could have an emergency in any one of those countries and you could have multiple emergencies in those countries. I think really typical would be the Democratic Republic of Congo, which you don't hear that much about in the news, to be honest. But today it's got the largest number of people in the world who are lacking access to food and also the largest number of people displaced inside a country. And yet you hardly hear about it. So it's a question of scale and, and frequency and duration of all of these but I would say at any one time, as I said, we're in over 40 countries. So it could be any one of those countries at any one time and at various sort of degrees of severity on quite a complex sliding scale. I mean, I think the big ones that we would be respond to, responding to would be the sort of crisis in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, in South Sudan, in Yemen, in Syria. And these are some of the what we call complex humanitarian crises, which involve multiple actors layers upon layers of of complexity, often involving political dimensions outside of the country or political forces or influences from outside the country, where the scale of need is typically overwhelmed by the supply of assistance and the, 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 the budget or the funding that's required for assistance, and for which we often find ourselves stuck in a protracted nature of just dealing with the symptoms, finding little time or opportunity to really address the root causes, which would reduce vulnerability in, in the longer term. Just very quickly, just whenever you mentioned Democratic Republic of Congo and how you hardly hear about it, is it Oxfam's role to promote that or to, to remind people or bring that into the public conversation? Is that part of what Oxfam do? And, and how do you do that in a sensitive way that you're not saying, okay, this is not more important than that, but this should be talked about? It's a really great question. And it's a really difficult task. I mean, we can, a huge part of our work is not just responding to material or, or needs on the ground, but actually also advocating as part within the international community for the, the, the more equitable distribution of resources, for the collection of tax revenue to, to support aid budgets, for you know governments to control the distribution of or sale of arms uh, in order to diminish the, the, the impact of, of armed conflict. 
it's very difficult. And what we try to do is we will undertake advocacy and fundraising for each country on a, on a country by country basis. But also at the global level, we will have broader thematic campaigns, which we will focus on. And that would be, for example, in relation to, to tax justice, in relation to, to climate change. And that sometimes happens in the public domain, where it's very visible. And in many cases will also happen in the private domain. Uh, so dealing with, with the UN system, dealing with uh, UN Security Council members who have a particular responsibility to address the impacts of threats to international peace and security. And then as part of the, you know, there's the, U, the UN Human Rights Council, which is based in Geneva. There's the UN General Assembly, which comes together every year. So it's about wherever you see opportunity and where there is opportunity to, to influence and to engage and to persuade and to encourage and to promote. We do that in whatever way possible, wherever possible, as resources allow. But I think to come back to one of the points you raised earlier about do you feel overwhelmed? Yes, we do a lot of the time simply because the scale of need, the scope of need and the frequency of need seems to be consistently ever greater than our capacity to, to actually respond. Where does that end, Colm? It continues to go that route and Oxfam get more and more squeezed and resources get more and more squeezed. And how do you stay hopeful that that tide is going to change or we will get on top of this? The hope comes from the small victories that you have every now and then. But I think the motivation really comes from not leaving people hopeless. That idea that you could ever neglect or give up on a community in need is, I mean, none of us would ever do it within our own communities at home here in Ireland. We would, we would never do that. And I think the idea that when we're working with communities abroad, the fact that you develop a relationship with the community, you work in partnership with the community, you see their needs, you see their fear, you see the risk that they could lose hope. But actually, often they're often the motivation for us because they never give up. Their level of resilience is, is quite extraordinary. There's often this risk in the aid industry that we give the impression that people are always looking for assistance and they're always looking for handouts. Our experience is very much that they're not looking for handouts, they're just looking for a leg up, just that little bit of extra support, just at that point in their experience where their capacity to respond is overwhelmed. People don't want to live off handouts. That, that undermines their dignity, it undermines their, their pride. What they want is to be assisted in their time of greatest need, supported to recover and then get on with their lives. This idea of constantly being dependent on aid is, is nothing that anybody wants. Good stuff. Let, let's move on to, um, dare we say it, COVID-19. It's that subject that we're all fed up with talking about. <laughs> it was Trump for a while, then it was Brexit and now it's COVID. Now COVID has had a, a far greater impact than either of those two. But it seems like the pandemic's had an impact on everything that we've had. And I was just wondering how COVID, which is obviously a separate crisis, how has that hampered humanitarian program work? Colin, just can you give us a bit of an idea? I think to take it back to the scope and the breadth of need, I think what COVID has done is, aside from the obvious the health implications of those who died or who have become ill as a result of COVID. There's the, the broader economic impacts of the efforts to address COVID, I think, has been hugely significant. So, you know, you've seen here in Ireland, our government has been able, when, when people have been furloughed, our government has been able to provide people with at least a minimum level of income while they have been able to work. In many of the countries in which we work, that, that governments simply don't have those resources. There is no social safety net. 
uh, certainly not at a scale that we would have here in Ireland. And, and the, we would almost describe as a luxury that we have had relative to other countries. So in many of the countries in which you work, people don't have the choice to stay at home. They don't have the choice not to go out to work. In the absence of vaccines, in the absence of hygiene material, they have to go out and work because if they don't go out and work, they generate no income and they generate no income. They don't have enough food to eat. It's, it can be as blunt and, and as simple as that. So there's the, the economic implications of the necessity of people having to work despite the risks that, that COVID presents to them. We also know in many instances as well that essential services that people would have access to in normal times have been undermined um, by COVID-19. So, for example, we do know that, and we've seen it here in Ireland and in many other countries, the impact of COVID-19 on on situation at the domestic level. So we've seen, for example, increases in domestic violence. At the same time as we've seen this increase in domestic violence because people have been cooped up at home, and let's be clear, being cooped up at home is not an excuse for domestic violence, but it's created the environment in which it, it has coped to, to, to flourish. But what we do know is that the typical service provider, so for example, the women's refuges or telephone hotlines or psychosocial services or medical assistance that is provided for survivors of domestic violence, those services have been undermined because of the limitations on mobility and people meeting during COVID. So you've got a rising need, but decline in the, in the provision of services to survivors of, of domestic violence. We've also seen a reduction in trade in many instances. So, you know, where goods weren't being transported across borders or from one part of a country to another, you've got less food available on the market and those foodstuffs are now more expensive as well. And at the same time, our physical access to people has also been reduced. Um, so we can't meet people in large groups. Communities themselves can't meet in large groups to identify problems and, and to respond to them. They can only meet in, in smaller groups and by by definition also, it's the same for us. One of the interesting elements of all of this is what we found in the early stages of COVID that we were taking great precaution. We were wearing masks and protective clothing. We are meeting communities. And one of the things that we discovered is that by doing that, actually we were creating fear within communities themselves because they just saw these strangers coming in with, with protective clothing. And actually in many cases, they were wondering whether we were the risk as opposed to coming to help support people in response to the risk. So I think COVID had both many direct and indirect uh, impacts on, on people's lives, which is been hugely challenging. It's also as well, just to add on it, you know, it's another crisis on top of crisis, which means it's another demand on, on our resources. So if we weren't already overwhelmed before, COVID has really stretched everybody very thin. And in some cases, we operate in countries, and Magda will know well from Tanzania, where the government's approach to COVID has changed quite radically over time. So, you know, in, in, in the early years, there was very little recognition of it. But we have seen a big, big shift in, in government response to that over time, which made things a little bit easier. Magda, how difficult is it to avoid the spread of COVID in refugee camps, where it's almost impossible to socially distance? Looking at Uganda, we have gone through two lockdowns prolonged lockdowns since last year, with the most recent one starting towards the end of May. And those lockdowns have meant two things. One, of course, other than reinforcing the SOPs in terms of mask wearing and whatever, a ban on social gatherings and all these other livelihoods options like open markets uh, where people get the day-to-day -day bread. 
when you go to the camps, I think the social distancing in Uganda context, because it's a settlement-based, may not be a big issue because people have a bit of space. They have the space for the land for the shelter, and they have other land for cultivation. And probably they may not feel the impact of that as much as people who have to earn a day-to-day living. But in terms of the services, some of it, especially around education, around all the programs that we have to do with these school children, all that has been suspended. At one point, they prioritized activities, some of them as essential and others are non-essential. And when you think of non-essential, then education becomes a non-essential and many other services. So really thinking of just giving water, making sure they have water, they have health, they have food, full stop. So the rest of the other aspects that people were engaged in, like, you know, committees, watch committees, committee doing this, this one supporting this program, everything had to be halted. And that meant that people really um, living in those environments get more and more frustrated. But the other aspect of it for me is the, the fact that the impacts are going to be long-lasting today for most of the families. Most Some families have lost the only breadwinner they had due to COVID or due to even just simple killings uh, because people have been found outside the curfew hours or they have been found in a pub and they are shot, you know, because they try to resist arrest or something like that. And people lose the only breadwinner in the home. And that will have very, very long-lasting impacts on people's mental and economic health of the homes. The most important aspect we are focusing on is access to vaccines, you know, because nationally we've not been having good coverage so far, but recently we have gotten more vaccines and also UN, UN brought in some vaccines for the refugee operations. So we are really working around change of perceptions because there's a lot of rumor tracking that needs to be done to convince people to even go for those vaccinations. But at least that is now our essential campaign, access to vaccines for the refugees as well. And some government strategy, national plans, includes refugees in to access to services. So that is something we are trying to work on with the government structures. Colm, I'm keen to just to get a bit of an idea. If you can explain how the Irish people, how they're involved in this, in the work of Oxfam and how through the Irish Aid Programme, how they support the work of Oxfam and, and all the stories that we're talking about here. Well, I think first and foremost, it's important to stress that everybody in Ireland through the payment of tax supports Ireland's contribution to international aid, which is administered through Irish Aid, which is a unit or a department of the the Department of Foreign Affairs. So everybody in this country, in some way, shape or form, through their efforts, through their labour and through their contribution to the tax revenue, is contributing to to Ireland's support to, to communities all over the world. On top of that, Irish people also donate directly to, to Oxfam and, and to, to other agencies noting that the level of aid that's provided by states all over the world is, is as we said earlier, is already being outstripped by the level of need. And so Irish people are very generous in supporting us to crisis as, to additional crises as and when they occur. So, for example, this year we had a particular appeal for COVID-19 in India, where I think we all saw the images on TV, which were quite distressful in many instances where you had families literally running around trying to find bottles of, of oxygen in order to ensure family members uh, could could breathe. But Irish people also support us, not just in terms of giving money, but actually also giving voice and helping us amplify the needs and the rights of people, and or more specifically, the deprivation of rights of people all across the world. So every time somebody visits our website, 
and supports us in campaigning, in terms of volunteering, in making representation to their local parliamentarian in order to get certain things pushed through Parliament. Any way, shape or form in which you give of yourself, whether at the local level or at the international level, is, is hugely important in helping us to do our work. And we see this as part of a broader process of, of mobilising people across the world. That idea of, of building voice, building momentum, building energy and, and, and really being able to stress and underline the need of key decision makers, both on this island, but also internationally, to take decisions, particularly around issues like climate change, particularly around issues related to access to the vaccine, about making decisions which create greater equality across the world and allocate resources based on people's needs at any one time, conscious that this can be quite fluid. But obviously, there are very clear demarcations of geography across the world, but also within countries across the world where you have haves and have nots. And clearly, there are individuals and, and households and communities which have really great need. We're ever grateful for people to provide a support in meeting. Okay, so Irish people are supporting that work. Can you just give us a bit of an idea right now what's being supported, what projects are ongoing, and what humanitarian work is being conducted by Oxfam currently? I think a really good example, and then it, this reverts back to this conversation we had earlier about the Band-Aid approach versus meeting the root causes. I mean, one of the things we know that we estimate, these are sort of generally accepted figures across the international aid community, that is seven times cheaper to prevent a crisis than it is to respond to crisis. So one of the things that we're doing right now in Kenya, where we are seeing quite some severe drought affecting millions of people, what we are trying to do is we're providing communities with supports to address their immediate needs now. Rather than waiting for their situation to become more severe and therefore more expensive to respond to later, we're providing them with money to meet their specific needs right now and, to, and food needs in particular. Magda spoke about access to water in the Democratic Republic of Congo right now. You'd have seen a couple of months ago there was a volcano in the city of Goma, which displaced thousands of people. Many people's homes were destroyed. And we're providing water and sanitation to 7,000 people in a camp which has been newly established, which will provide temporary shelter to people until more permanent solutions are found. In South Sudan, we are providing uh, agricultural training and we're providing material assistance in the form of seeds and tools to communities affected by uh, seasonal flooding. So a key part of what we do in all instances is to try and understand the power dynamics in any community and understand what makes some people more vulnerable than others. So what we're trying to do is work in, in many instances what we call community protection committees. And we support communities to map what they see as the protection risks in their community and then support them to raise their voices to local authorities to address those protection risks. So that could be something as, as simple in, in DRC, for example, where there may be a road which is quite insecure and people on their way to market are, are being exploited and, and being made to pay illegal taxes. So we might ask the police or, or the army to provide greater security in that particular area. Or we will start to build awareness about the rights of women and girls, which in many patriarchal communities uh, are deprioritized and often go unseen. And so what we'll try and do is work with local communities to build their understanding amongst the men of the rights of women and girls, but also amongst women and girls, understanding of what those rights are in law 
and where to go to claim and access them to, for example, if there has been an incident of, of sexual violence, to understand the type of support and assistance that they should be able to claim from the local police and to understand that the forms of protection, they shouldn't be forced into a situation where they have to confront the person who's violated them, but actually they should be afforded the protection to make a complaint and, and follow the due course of law. So it's many different components, many different shapes and formats of what that aid can come. It can be material assistance. It can be capacity building. It can be support in providing access to an essential service. So one of the things we would also do, if, for example, there is a survivor of, of sexual violence, we would provide them with referral to a medical, legal and psychosocial services that might be available locally as well. Okay, Colin, brilliant. Thanks for that summary and a bit of an idea of, of how we can all contribute and how that's being processed and what currently is on the agenda for Oxfam. Uh, folks, this has been a really fascinating discussion. Certainly, I have learned a lot today. So thanks so much to both you guys, Magdalene, Nanda Wula and Colin Byrne for joining me on Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. And thank you for listening. You can post your thoughts and comments on the podcast using the Twitter hashtag First World Problems Pod and check out OxfamIreland.org to learn more about Oxfam's work. Make sure and catch our bonus episode hosted by Irish Examiner columnist Joyce Fagan, where she talks gender justice with Orla O'Connor, Director of the National Women's Council of Ireland, and Linga Mehoa, Country Director for Oxfam in Malawi. Thank you very much. <laughs>